Welcome to Novel Pairings, a podcast dedicated to making the classics readable, relevant, and fun. In every episode, we'll bring our big English teacher energy, discussing the modern literary landscape in context with the classics. Along the way, we'll talk about the books we love and the books we loathe, and help stock your TBR pile with old and new reads for every literary taste. Today, we're sharing the audio from our class, The Gilded Age, Entering Edith Wharton's World. We wanted to share this class with all of you to prepare for Wharton in Winter, our January through February read-along of The Custom of the Country. We also wanted to share this class as one example of the public scholarship we create for our Patreon community. We've taught classes on specific authors, on historical context, on literary movements, on critical lenses, and more. We're working on converting our past classes to exclusive Patreon episodes so you can catch up and listen to any class that you can't attend live. Today's episode is one example of this work that we're doing behind the scenes, and we hope you enjoy the introduction to Edith Wharton's time period and her literary significance. In order to access more classes like this one, along with class handouts, bonus episodes, and an engaging Discord community, go to patreon.com slash novel pairings and join us for just $10 a month. We would love to see you in class at book club or in the comments this winter. All right. Well, let's get started. And just, I'm really, really, really excited by those poll results because as we talk about this class and as we talk about Edith Wharton, we've got such a mix of experiences. And so it's going to be really, really fun. But we wanted to start off by just talking about what the heck is so interesting about the Gilded Age and why we would want to teach a full class on it. Um, I have to admit, like, this is one of my nerdy sweet spots. Like, I just really enjoy the era. Um, But I think that you do too, Sarah, especially when we think about, like, we've both talked about how we love Downton Abbey. um, And it's like a comfort rewatch show. And we love Gilmore Girls. Mm -hmm. Um, There are a lot of pop culture examples and echoes of the Gilded Age and of Edith Wharton um, that are either like really direct or um, are just like they totally echo her world. And I think they're like, they're really big cultural touchstones. I mean, Downton Abbey was such a huge show. And since then, I feel like there's been a renewed interest in the era And obviously Gossip Girl, like they're just rebooting it. So it's on again. I forget which, do you know which network it's on? I think it's on HBO. Okay. Yeah. I haven't watched it yet, obviously. Um, And Gilmore Girls. So as you read House of Mirth or other Wharton works, if you watch Gilmore Girls, you can pick up on a lot of references. So they're very much inspired by Edith Wharton and the Gilded Age specifically. so yeah, it's, it's really fun to talk about. And as we get into it, I think that you will 
see or hear about a lot of echoes of why it still feels really present in our current age. Yes, I'm really excited to talk about that and hear people's thoughts on it. But yeah, I think that there's, you know, there's always something fun about getting to peer into the lives of the uber wealthy and not all Gilded Age literature does that, but Edith Wharton does it so well. And it's just so interesting to think about that, that time period. Yeah. So let's get into the historical stuff. And so we're going to, there's so much to talk about with the Gilded Age. We're going to talk about some broad movements and broad strokes. Um, Some things you will hear in the podcast episode next week. So we tried to pluck out some new and interesting information. Um, But to start timeline wise, so just so that you can kind of have a context for when the Gilded Age is taking place, We are talking between Reconstruction, so the post-Civil War era, and the Progressive era, so roughly the 1870s to 1900, and this is really coinciding with the Industrial Revolution. So the name itself, the Gilded Age, comes from this enormous wealth built by business tycoons and robber barons and the glamorous, glamorous lifestyles that they led as a result. And Mark Twain, he is one of our Gilded Age authors, and we can credit him for coining Gilded Age. And he meant it in a way that the age is really sparkly and shiny in that like all of these big wealthy people are larger than life and they live a life of glamour, but underneath there is a ton of corruption and just like dirt and filth under the surface of what is gilded. And um, it actually, he wrote a satirical novel called The Gilded Age, A Tale of Today. Um, And so that's where that largely comes from. Thank you, Mark Twain, for always having like something (laughs) sassy to say (laughs) about your era. But you might recognize some of the big names of the time, like Carnegie, Vanderbilt, Rockefeller, Ford. These are all new money people. So they were making enormous wealth in steel and railroads and other huge industries. So those are not the only wealthy people, but those are some of the more recognizable names that we know today because either they have buildings named after them or their family members are still dripping in diamonds. (laughs) And so, um, especially with Wharton, her books are mostly set in New York City or some are set over in Europe. New York City is considered like a hub. A lot of the literature of the time comes out of um, the cities because urban areas were booming and sprawling. But that wasn't the only area with incredibly wealthy families and major class differences. So depending on where you live, there probably was a Gilded Age boom. If you are in the Midwest, in Milwaukee or Chicago, there are Gilded Age mansions over there. Um, It's just that we really think of New York City as where all of these families really, really hung out, Um, partly because of the stock exchange. But contrasting 
all of the glittery parties, the opera seats, the European trips and travels of the upper class, where the Gilded Age name comes from, is also widespread poverty in this time period. So um, I just grabbed some stats here. In 1890, which is like very firmly in the Gilded Age, 11 million of the nation's 12 million families earned less than $1,200 per year. And of that group, their average annual income was $380, which was well below the poverty line. And I know that those are like hard to convert into like, what would that be today? But just think, excuse me, all of those families were below the poverty line compared to the like 1% of the people who were at the top. So rural Americans and new immigrants were crowding the cities and urban areas. Tenements were spreading out. And so Americans, particularly wealthy Americans, had sewing machines. They had phonographs. They had these new skyscrapers. They had electric lights. They had all of these new things but most of the population was laboring in poverty. So Edith Wharton is writing about the fun part of the glamorous world. Um, And she kind of like hints at what's happening um, in the classes below her characters, but not a whole lot. There are some authors who, who wrote about the lower class at the time. So if any of this is sounding familiar, like maybe, I don't know, reminding you of some billionaires who are planning trips to the moon and not paying taxes while the rest of the country struggles to make ends meet. You're not the only one to make that connection. It has been um, tossed around for a while, like over the last few years. I think some of the first um, the first indications of it that I've seen were maybe 2016 or 2017, where economists and um, writers were talking about a second gilded age. And that would be like what we're in right now. So those comparisons are really disheartening, but it does make revisiting that time period and the literature from that time period really interesting because it feels so incredibly relevant for today. Yeah, I I love what you guys are saying in the chat. Alicia says it feels like the tech giants are the new robber barons mm-hmm. and it's it's so true and so interesting to to think about and make those those connections and i think for me personally yeah reading edith wharton this summer i connected to it more than i maybe would have at at another time so um yeah it's fascinating to pick up these books right now so as we said there's just so much happening <laughs> there's no way to cover all of it um but inventions, social and political movements, the dawn of celebrity culture and gossip rights. Like there's just some really fun stuff to get into. Um, So instead of trying to cover it all, we're going to just breeze through a couple of fascinating facts. And then there's way more on your handout. Um, So we'll share a link to a handout with more resources for you. Um, But something I find really interesting is how freaked out people were about (laughs) bicycles which like cars were being invented at this time. People had early motor cars. We even learn about that in the house of mirth that they're like driving around. Um, 
and bicycles, I don't know, they're, they feel like there's something that has just been around forever, but there was something of a bicycling craze and it actually really shaped how we think about commuting in cities today. Led to people demanding bike safety lanes, changed women's fashions, think shorter skirts. And yes, this was a really big deal and people were not happy about it. Um, it was considered really scandalous for ladies to be riding bikes. Um, and I just, I think that that's such an interesting contrast of the times where you have all of these new inventions, you have all of these new things coming out and you have women being granted a little bit more freedom, but still it was very um, like, okay, you can ride your bicycle, but do you have to do it in public? And do you have to wear that short of a skirt while you're doing it? Um, Something else to keep in mind is newspapers. I think the journalism of this era is really interesting um, to consider. Newspapers were highly political I very vividly remember when we approached the Gilded Age in high school history classes, our history books were just full of political cartoons because it was like very of the time and the robber barons and the politicians were constantly being satirized. And so while newspapers were printing these political cartoons and they were exposing corruption and scandal, so they had a really important role they were also really incredibly biased. They didn't necessarily have the sort of tenets of journalism that we expect today. Um, It was a little bit uh, Wild West-like as far as journalism was concerned. And so that really impacted what got reported and how, which of course literally shapes history, which is really interesting. Um, Gossip columns also gained popularity because the upper class sort of they became these sort of celebrities. They're, they were like the Kardashians of the Gilded Age, right? So everybody wanted to know what was going on with them, or at least they wanted to know what was going on among their own set. A lot of people did not have time to <laughs> read the gossip columns because they were busy working in really dirty factories. Um, but there was just this hotbed of scandal and affairs and frivolity making for really salacious reading. So those are just a couple of things. And then Okay, maybe my favorite part, because I am such a sucker for old houses, and I just really love, like, walking around and looking at old houses and touring mansions, and I understand, like, there are problems with this much wealth just, like, existing in the world, but how cool are these? They still remain major tourist attractions to this day. And so I think we have a picture of the Mount, which is Edith Wharton's home. And I haven't visited the Mount, but I would really, really like to. Um, I live in Northern New York right now. And there are a lot of Gilded Age mansions um, to tour in this area because a lot of them had summer homes up here. I don't live terribly far from the St. Lawrence River and you can take a tour of this river and there are islands all over and these wealthy Gilded Age people owned islands and built these huge houses on the islands on the St. Lawrence River and they would just like boat out to their island and live in these mansions for the summer and then like boat back. 
and a lot of them burned down. <laughs> um, oh, so wow. that is like a really fun, really fun tour if you're ever in this area. Yeah, the top right here is um, one of the uh, mansions on St. Lawrence River. And the, the bottom right is the mount. That's that's Edith Wharton's home. Um, the Frick Collection up at the top left. And then Newport, which Carol brought up in, in the chat, um, is another place where there were many, many uh, Gilded Age mansions. And now Taylor Swift owns one of them. So we really are <laughs> living in a second Gilded Age. <laughs> The Frick Art Museum was one of my absolute favorite places to visit in New York City. And just like imagining the walking through the gallery and thinking like, oh, at some point this was someone's house and they just had an art gallery. They had all of this in their house rather than just walking through a museum. It is pretty mind blowing. So I'm kind of a nerd about all of that stuff. <laughs> and I just think it's it's fun to see. So, um, yeah, so that is our little history tour. Sarah, do you have anything you want to add about the historical stuff? One, um, invention thing that I think is really interesting and, and this kind of was a, a wave of evolution, but, um, street lamps were invented in during the, the Gilded Age. And then, they changed again when they became electric further on, but that was another one of those inventions that gave women a lot more freedom because it was safer to walk alone in the city at night. Like in, even in the house of mirth, you see Lily walking, not necessarily at night, but you see her alone more than you would see like any of the women in Pride and Prejudice, <laughs> of course. So that those inventions that gave women freedom and then really freaked people out, like the bicycle, like the street lamps, um, are really, really interesting to me. And um, a, a great book that discusses that is Spinster by Kate Bollock. Um, I'll put a link to that in, in the chat if anyone is, is interested. That is really interesting. I love, I just love this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't even listened to any podcasts about the Gilded Age yet. I bet there are some good ones. So we'll have to look into that. But anyway, um, we're going to talk a little bit about the literature of the time period. We're just, we're going to give a really brief overview here because these are authors that many of us have encountered, like we said, in high school English classes. Also that we have either already covered on the podcast or definitely will cover on the podcast um, but you likely recognize a lot of these people. We've got Mark Twain, who we already mentioned, Henry James. We'll talk about him again for sure. Stephen Crane and Jack London. Isn't it interesting to think that Jack London and his wilderness adventures were taking place at the same time period where everyone was crowded in the cities? I just, I don't know. The, the scope, I think Gilded Age literature, part of what it does is really shows you like the scope of the American landscape in a really fascinating way. We have Charlotte Perkins Gilman and Kate Chopin and Booker T. Washington, W.E.B. Du Bois, Willa Cather and Edith Wharton. And that is, I mean, barely scratching the surface. This is a really rich time for literature. And all of these authors, I mean, they wrote a wide variety of stuff. We have poetry from them, drama, journalism, fiction, um, 
I think, okay, so this must have been on the Faded Mates podcast that Sarah McLean was talking about how when she was writing boxing scenes, boxing scenes into her romance novels, something that she read as research was uh, sports writing from Jack London. And I had no idea that he was a sports journalist on top of all the outdoorsy things he was doing in writing. So he apparently reported on sports and there's like, you can just go read all of his sports writing. So a lot of these authors were writing a wide variety of things, um, not just novels. Yeah. I, Catherine said that she'd never thought that Willa Catherine and Edith Wharton were writing at the, the same, same time. Yeah. And it's so true to think about, um, I, I think it would be really interesting to um, divide an American literature curriculum, not just chronologically, but geographically, because it's just fascinating to think about what life was like in different parts of the country. Um, obviously, class and wealth and status comes into all of those questions as well. But yeah, what a rich time for literature just to see all of these different authors writing a wide variety. Um, we actually were curious which of these Gilded Age authors you all are familiar with. So we have another poll. So for this one, you can select any of these authors that you have read. And then we'd also be curious. We're always, we always like taking your temperature on this. <laughs> which of these authors you'd love to see us cover on the podcast. So if you have an author or a particular book by one of these authors, you'd love us to cover, drop them in the chat. Um, we'd love to know. All right. You can all hear my husband doing dishes. <laughs> I heard the water running and I was like, Oh, perfect. Thank you, Curtis. <laughs> <laughs> Not a lot of people so far are selecting Charlotte Perkins Gilman. I'll I'll tell you, she wrote the yellow wallpaper and sometimes her name gets forgotten. So if you've read the yellow wallpaper, you have read Charlotte Perkins Gilman. That might not change anything, but um, yeah. Oh, it's really fun to see what people are interested in hearing on the podcast or what you're all interested in. I I really, I mean... I don't generally think of like being a big fan of American literature. And then I look at this time period and I really like regional literature. So like when we look at something like, oh, this is East Coast lit, this is West Coast lit, this is Southern lit. Like I really love, I love that. And so this, this is a fun list to draw from. It really is. Lots of yeah. Mark Twain. Lots of Mark Twain. And I, we've been dragging our feet on covering him, but we will. <laughs> I actually really like his short stories and a lot of his essays. I think that those are a lot of fun to read. So maybe that might be a way to dip our toes in without having to go right to Huckleberry Finn. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's that's true. Um, yeah, I, I, I like Huck Finn. I just always thought it took up way too much classroom time because <laughs> it takes so long to read mm -hmm. it. Um, oh, Alicia, that's so interesting. American regionalism. Love that. We'll have um, to chat. <laughs> yes. Oh, and yeah, we'll have to, we will have to get 
reading Charlotte Perkins Gilman. I really think this group would love talking about the yellow wallpaper. Yes. So we, we must do that. Oh my goodness. Yes. Um, yeah. So something that kind of unites all of these writers is that many of them, when they're writing fiction or essays, they're really trying to capture the essence of real life. So rather than sort of like the Gothic literature that we have covered on the podcast with Frankenstein or something that's kind of fantastical or romantic, these, a lot of these authors were really focused on everyday experiences. So in some cases, that means the everyday experiences of the super, super wealthy. In other cases, excuse me, y'all just have to excuse us. We're, we're pregnant. Yeah, I was going to make an an announcement that if we have to like eat snacks, that's just going to be the reality for this is what it is. (laughs) Um, It doesn't help. I'm drinking like bubbly water, but you do what you have to do anyway. um, And then you've got the everyday experiences of a man who's like out dog sledding. You've got the everyday experiences of just this wide variety of people. And so that realism is something that really unites the authors of this time period. And it really comes from art. Um, We didn't include um, a bunch of Gilded Age art in here, but that's like worth just a quick Google image search because I think that a lot of those pieces are really recognizable um, because they're pretty iconic, like just in the sort of, I don't know, American like ether. (laughs) They're just like out there. Um, And so we have these like realistic portraits and realistic landscapes. And that was just the way that the literary tide turned. So additionally, under realism, many of the themes that these authors were exploring were industrialism versus nature, because of course we have all of these railroads being built across the country. We have industrialism taking over um, certain jobs. We have Um, nature literally starting to be destroyed in the name of industrialism. So we have those themes, which I think we're seeing a lot of crop up today as well. Class struggles. Freedom is a really common theme that we see throughout literature um, in this time period. And like in every sense of the word, what does freedom mean? We um, We have narratives of slavery that are exploring what does freedom mean. We have, in total contrast to that, Edith Wharton exploring what does freedom mean to women in like way upper class society. So freedom is a big theme here. Identity, of course, I think we just see that in most of most of literature, but like sort of the American identity, like what does it mean to specifically be American or what does it specifically mean to be from New York City? And women's lives were being written about in really new and different ways, especially, especially we'll talk about that when we uh, get to The Yellow Wallpaper by Charlotte Perkins Gilman. Yeah, I think that the idea of um, American identity and American literature as its own entity was becoming so prominent at this time. And that might be why we see such wide variety and such interesting types of literature being written at this time, because it really was at this moment where writers wanted to differentiate themselves from 
their British peers um, or European peers and and really establish an, an American ethos to the the literature they were writing. And we're also coming off of, well, you know, we'll talk about various literary movements as as our classes grow and develop, but we're coming off of like a Nathaniel Hawthorne type romanticism writing where just everything was so, so emotional and exaggerated. And, um, and so I think sometimes we read an eat like Edith Wharton type book and think this is realism. Like this doesn't feel like real life to me, but in comparison to those, those romantic books, um, it, it really was a portrayal of day-to-day real life for certain people, <laughs> of course. So speaking of those certain people, we are going to talk a little bit about Edith Wharton here, and we will definitely sort of connect this to the House of Mirth. So if you are reading or you recently read or you're going to read House of Mirth, um, your ears might perk up here. So Edith Wharton, she is, I almost think, I mean, she was a popular author of the day, but I do think that there's a certain, maybe because of the way that she inhabited the society that she writes about, there's just like this certain glamorization of her even to this day where she's sort of revered. I think it just has to do with how she has influenced and touched pop culture. But um, she lived from 1862 to 1937. And we said Gilded Age, 1870s, early 1900s. So she saw it all like beginning to end in that Gilded Age. And she was part of one of the wealthy families. Her maiden name was Jones, literally as in keeping up with the Joneses, that phrase supposedly um, was coined about her family. And she was highly educated and refined, really smart, but her only expectation in life was to marry well. And her mother was really, really, really really set on her marrying well. She did. She married Teddy Wharton and had a really unhappy marriage. Um, But that marriage provided her with a more than comfortable living situation. Uh, Hence the mount. She, She built that, like obviously not her with her bare hands, but she designed it. She designed the gardens. She dictated what she wanted. And she like served as basically architect for the Mount. And because of their wealth, they were able to build that mansion. Um, He sold the Mount, which was her pride and joy. And so she was like, "Mm, bye, I'm going to go live in France and divorce you forever. Um, But they had a lot of other issues. Um, Teddy Wharton suffered from depression for most of his life. And you can imagine at the time there really weren't treatments. Um, and I, I just think that they had a difficult living situation and it wasn't necessarily a love match. It was just like, Hey, we're both rich. Let's get together and be richer. But, um, so she had all of this free time because she had a lot of money and she lived in a mansion and she could, she could write. And she was really quite ambitious. Um, she wrote a lot, like, prolific writer, poetry, at least one play, 
essays, novels, nonfiction essays. She wrote about art and architecture and travel. She had a lot of interests and she loved design. Like I said, she took great pleasure in designing the mount and she wrote books about design. So um, I, she's obviously best known for her fictional novels today, but I think it's really interesting that she had all of these other interests and things that she wrote about. And I have to just imagine that being interested in all of that additional stuff, like as a novelist, it just gives you more material. You're going to be more descriptive about certain things because of what you enjoy and what you notice. So, um, I, so she really captured the glamour, the gossip of the Gilded Age because she's part of that world. But I think it's really interesting that she was the first woman to win a Pulitzer Prize for fiction. And that is a really big deal. Yeah, that's so fascinating to me. I know. I just, I don't know. And it's, it's like, well, you know, someone had to be the first, right? Um, Mm -hmm. But for a long time, I mean, I didn't know it was her specifically. Anyway, she was a trailblazer. um, But also it's just important to remember like this privilege that she came from because she was blind Mm -hmm. to a lot of the world as well. Yeah. And if you're already reading the house of mirth or have read it, you can see that in her depictions of people who are lower class, her anti-Semitism. There's just a lot in there that, that it's clear her sheltered, uh, very bubbled <laughs> worldview, um, led to the, the Pulitzer thing. So fascinating to me because I just, I do think that her books really did focus on women's lives and I think I would have expected an author um, who the first, I would have expected the first woman author to win the Pulitzer to write more like a man or focus more on, on men's lives. Um, I, I think I read, and now I'm going to have to look this up because this might, might be wrong, that the Pulitzer committee actually didn't want to give it to her and then was over, was vetoed and overruled by a higher up committee. Um, So that's, I'll check on that and confirm, (laughs) but it's interesting as well. I have just done a quick search, like a blog post. It's from the library of America. Normally I would check sources a lot more, um, but it talks about, um, Sinclair Lewis. And I think that was part of, I mean, part of the drama was like, people thought, well, this person deserved it more, which still happens. Right. But, um, I'll just drop that link in the chat so we can revisit it later and, um, kind of check some of the sources in there, but yeah, it is, it is really interesting to think about. Um, and just interesting to think about that, that prize has been going on for so long. Sometimes I forget how long these institutions have been around. Yes. No wonder they are so slow to change. <laughs> exactly. So yes, Edith, there are definitely like we as modern readers can notice a lot of her blind spots and her privilege and how that, you know, affects her writing. Um, but there is this sense of self-awareness, at least in terms of her own circle that I think is what makes her work so fascinating. So some of her literary influences, we mentioned Henry James earlier. 
Um, they're very similar. Excuse me again. This is just bad, y'all. I'm going to need peppermint tea next time we teach. Um, <laughs> really similar writing style, especially if you read their short stories. I mean, if I if I like was reading them blind, like I had never read a Henry James story before, I had never read an Edith Wharton story before, and the names were off, I would probably think they were by the same author, to be honest. But they were close pals. And so that influence wasn't a bad thing necessarily. They were just like in the same literary circles. Edith Wharton hung out with a lot of male writers because that's who there was to hang out with if you wanted someone to read your work. And um, I also, so I knew about her and Henry James, but in doing research for this class, I found um, some evidence of Oscar Wilde influencing her work. And it makes a lot of sense, but um, especially because she toured Europe as a young woman and then later in her career, but specifically the way that she uses sex and sensuality in her novels is very Oscar Wilde-ish. So for example, in the Wilde's trials um, where he was specifically on trial, Um, there was a lot of focus on members of this upper-class society trying to blackmail one another, which comes up in the House of Mirth. Um, So for example, um, well, I don't want to spoil too much, but um, there is a situation in the House of Mirth that like really um, very much mirrors Oscar Wilde's Lady Windermere's fan. And so... Um, I, I can very much see the echoes in there. I would say Wharton's work is less comedy of errors. Like Oscar Wilde was really funny. And when he is turning the uh, microscope to society, he's doing it in a funny, farcical kind of way, like really um, witty and sassy kind of way. And Wharton is more social observation and commentary like Austin, like Jane Austen. Um, But I think his influence is evident and just, um, this is like really broad, but I think we see more sex and sexuality in European literature of the time than American lit. We can say that's because the Americans are puritanical and like there's a lot of reason for that, but... Edith Wharton's work gets pretty salacious. So I think Oscar Wilde is a pretty, pretty interesting inspiration there. Um, And then, okay, so this really gets into House of Mirth stuff, but I loved reading her article in The Atlantic and it is called Confessions of a Novelist. And um, I, I don't want to compare it to writers like, and Lamott of today who are like encouraging or who are sort of sharing wisdom. It's more her just being like, hey, it's really interesting to know the behind the scenes of the writing process. So here's how I think about writing. And so she shares her writing process. She shares musings on the writing life, what she thinks fiction should be and her motivations. And it's pretty relevant and timely. I mean, a lot of this stuff is like stuff you hear authors talk about today. So that's worth reading if you're interested. But I plucked a couple of things here. We know, like based on her life and the insights that we get from her novels, that she was critiquing and writing about her friends, 
her family, her people in the upper class society, the circles that she was moving in. It's very much seems like writing what you know, but the way that she explains it is really interesting. So she says that there are just these rules that people tend to follow and that they think novelists should only write about what they know literally or figuratively. Um, and that that's kind of how they're supposed to do it. And so she's like, well, okay, so I get that I'm supposed to write what I know, but the problem is that I know the shallowest society, like the people I know are so shallow. And she says, in what aspect could a society of irresponsible pleasure seekers be said to have on the old woe of the world any deeper bearing than the people composing such a society could guess? The answer to my musings was that a frivolous society can acquire dramatic significance only through what its frivolity destroys. Its tragic implication lies in its power of debasing people and ideals. The answer, in short, was my heroine, Lily Bart. So she's basically saying, I know I'm supposed to write what I know. I have a lot of inspiration around me, but writing about these frivolous and irresponsible people is just, I can't go deep with that unless I examine what this society is destroying And that is how she came up with her heroine. She also says in there that she gets names for her characters before she gets any other information about them. And so she like lists a couple of names that she's never been able to fit into a story. And she's like, well, these are characters living in my head and I love this name, but I've never been able to use it. And it's just really, really fun. So I highly recommend that article. But I just thought, especially with reading House of Mirth, that that part about, um, her questioning how she should write about this society is really fascinating. That's so interesting. And um, I I will put a link. I put a link to that article in the chat. I'm putting a link now um, to our handout. And that article also lives there. There's a lot of extra resources on Wharton and Gilded Age, um, some of which Chelsea used for today's discussion and others we just think would be fun uh, extra reading, nerdy deep dives for anyone who wants to get really into into that. And of course, we'll put a link to that um, handout on Patreon as well. So you can always access it there. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd love to see you over on Patreon for more nerdy classes, content, and public scholarship. Thank you to our Classics Club for making this episode and all of our Classics book clubs and bonus episodes possible. And a special thanks to our Novel Pairings producers, Emma, Dilma, Kathy, Amy, Jody, and Diane, whose generous support sustains our show. Thank you to Miles Eichner and Mark Anderson for our theme music. We'll be back soon to discuss The Garden of Forking Paths by Jorge Luis Borges for a short story club. Until then, we declare after all, there is no enjoyment like reading. How much sooner one tires of anything than of a book.